Coming up on today's show, the Transportation Safety Board has released the findings of their investigation into whether or not a train may have started the fire in Lytton, B.C. this summer. The border reopens November 8th to Canadians who want to travel into the United States for non-essential purposes. And you've probably seen the report. It's a La Nina winter on the way and lots of people saying it's going to be cold and stormy. Will it? We'll get some details. The Transportation Safety Board has released the findings of their report into the Lytton wildfire this summer, of course, the one that devastated the interior B.C. town, specifically looking into the train activity as being the potential cause of that fire. As you know, many people reported that in the days following the incident. Some eyewitnesses saying they saw a train on fire and all sorts of things like that. So let's dig into this report a little bit and uh, go through the findings. Joining us, we have Janet Brown, who is a senior reporter at CKNW Radio in Vancouver. Janet, thanks so much for your time today. I appreciate you joining us. Oh, it's my pleasure, Shay. Good morning to you from rainy Vancouver. Oh, is it raining? <laughs> yeah, I mean... <laughs> Big surprise, right? Yeah, exactly. It's sort of be expected, right? It's still a beautiful city, though, so we'll take it. Um, Janet, long story short, essentially the TSB is saying their investigation has determined that trains were not the cause of the fire, right? Long story short? That's exactly it. And uh, a lot of people are very unhappy with Mm -hmm. that report. The people living in Lytton, especially who lost their homes, are very unhappy. Yes, the TSB ruled that it did a significant investigative work. That was the quote to determine if there was a definitive connection between railway operations running through Lytton, a small town of only about 250 people in the B.C. interior, and the fire that really basically, Shea, destroyed that town back on June 30th. In the end, the board said it did not identify any link between railway operations and the massive blaze. The TSB said it confirmed with both CN and CP that no rail grinding activity or track work had taken place in the area the day of the fire or the days before the first report of fire. Um, Asked how many interviews were done and who exactly was interviewed during the investigation, the TSB investigator said that information is privileged and protected. However, Shay, when Mm -hmm. pressed several times, investigators actually admitted they did not directly interview any residents of Lytton about the fire. And, well, you know, let me tell you, this has stunned many residents who are very unhappy with the TSB findings. Most feel the fire was indeed started by a passing train through the community. And one of those people is Kevin Loring. He now lives in Ottawa, but he grew up in Lytton. His childhood home burned to the ground. His parents still lived in that home. And here's what he has to say in regards to the TSB report. That's disgusting. So how, like, so you're, you're conducting an investigation into whether or not a, an industrial accident burnt a town down. Uh, this basically, that's what it is. And people were calling this a, a wildfire. It wasn't a wildfire. If indeed the train did, in fact, burn the town down, that's an industrial accident. So if you have eyewitnesses to the account uh, of what started the, the, the fire and you don't interview them, how can you possibly come to the conclusion that you do? There's a lot of questions that need to be asked about, like, you know, it was 50 degree weather that week in the Fraser Canyon. Why are the railroads running at full schedule when they know that that's a fire risk? It's a fire hazard when it's not uh, in extreme weather conditions. So for the for the lead investigator to come out and say that there's no conclusive evidence, uh, you have to wonder if they're not captured by the industry that they're supposed to oversee. 
You know, Janet, he raises some really, really good questions. I mean, did the investigators give any reasoning as to why they didn't actually speak to... You know, there were several eyewitnesses who reported seeing trains on fire that day. And not only that, there is also video that was posted on social media uh, of the beginning of the fire, which was only right beside, adjacent to the railway tracks. So, you know, Shay, the question here has to be asked, will perhaps the TSB maybe reopen the investigation into the cause? Who knows? I have to tell you, uh, I have never seen anything like this in my over three decades of reporting. A backlash like this to a TSB investigation into an incident, I've never seen such a thing in my life, really. So, you know what? Maybe they will reopen the investigation. They did say, the investigators yesterday, in their news conference with reporters, that if there was significant new information, that they would reopen the investigation. So, you know what? It's open-ended right now, I would suggest. Um, You know, residents who lost their homes still displaced. They can't get back to look around. They want access to their properties. There's a lot of unhappy people still uh, from the town of Lytton. There's still rubble in that area, still lots of cement structures that are still standing. And as I say, they can't get in to have a look at their property or even sift through it for the odd article that that may be under that rubble somewhere. Um, At the same time, though, it should be noted that the BC Wildfire Service is still investigating the fire, and also the RCMP, Shay, they are also doing an inquiry right now to see if there's any criminality involved, so perhaps something may may come out of that. Who knows? But uh, So the TSB I, I may not be the be-all and end-all then. Those, as you say, there are other investigations that are running right now. Absolutely. So there, there could be more. And yeah, the RCMP still has to report back whether the result of their inquiry could result in any further investigation. And yes, the BC Wildfire Fire Service also investigating. So yeah, we have not heard the end of this, that's for sure. Um, and we just got a text from somebody wondering about you know what they investigate in terms of the train. And like you said, they checked if there was any grinding activity or if there was any track maintenance being done at that time. You know, According to the report and what they released, they say they took a very close look look at the actual trains and examine them for any evidence of burning or anything like that. So they say they've looked at the trains after the fact. That's right, they did, and they actually climbed on the trains and, and looked around and, in, and and interviewed the people that were on board the train, working on board those trains. But it, I, I think you make a good point. I mean, it, it seems like a glaring gap, I, I think I'll use that word, a gap, not to interview the people that were there witnessing what happened. What's wrong with chatting with them? What's wrong yeah. with looking at their video and seeing what they have to offer up? And, and maybe it wasn't relevant to the investigation investigation, perhaps, but at least talk to them. Yeah, exactly. A lot of unanswered questions there. Absolutely. So uh, I think they were hoping the report would answer some of those questions and it's only raised more, Janet. We really appreciate you uh, coming and chatting with us about that today. Anytime. Thank you, Shay. Have a great day. You bet. That's Janet Brown, who is a senior reporter with CKNW in Vancouver. November 8th. That is the day the U.S. border will open to non-essential travel for double-vaccinated Canadians heading into the United States. Uh, We're starting to learn some of the details about how it's going to work. You won't necessarily have to produce proof of vaccination on November 8th. You'll be asked, and you'll have to say, yes, you are double-vaccinated, and some people will be selected for random screening. Now, if you are driving or taking a ferry, you don't have to have a negative test to get into the U.S. If you're flying, you do at least at this point. 
um, to come back into Canada, you still need to have the negative PCR test. So um, it's a work in progress. What about mixed doses, blah, blah, blah. Still a lot of questions that remain, uh, but we at least have a date, November 8th. But the question is, if you look at the way the border situation throughout COVID has been handled, it really seems like there hasn't been a lot of cooperation between the two countries. The U.S. has done their thing, Canada's done their thing, which is a pretty big departure from the way things typically have gone. So let's chat a bit about that now with Edward Alden, who's a visiting professor of U.S.-Canada economic relations at Western Washington University and author of The Closing of the American Border, Terrorism, Immigration and Security Since 9-11. Mr. Alden, thank you for your time today. appreciate you joining us. You bet. Great to be with you. Thanks. You know, taking a look at this situation, lots of things have been mismanaged throughout the pandemic. There's no question. You're sort of learning as you go. But we can definitely put the border on that list where things have been confusing and a bit of a mishmash, which is really it's a departure from the way things have always worked. A very long-standing partnership seemed to have gone out the window in some ways. Is that fair? Yeah, I think that's absolutely fair. And it was was quite shocking in many ways because there just is a long history of, of close cooperation at the U.S.-Canada border. It doesn't mean Canada and the United States always see eye-to-eye over all these issues, but, but there was a shared commitment uh, to a highly functioning land border, given its importance to trade and importance to, you know, especially Canadians living so close uh, to the border with the United States. So, yeah, this was, this was a, a major, major departure from, uh, from that longstanding practice. You know, most recently, I think 9-11 was the last major bait, uh, border closure, and it was done very quickly, almost in a scramble-type situation, much like this was. But at the time, it seemed the two governments worked together on this. Is that fair? Yeah, no question. And they really resolved it quite quickly. I mean, there were a couple of days of long backlogs. The border was never actually closed as such. There was just this extremely high level of scrutiny that produced huge backlogs, particularly for trucks and commercial traffic. But within a couple of days, partly because the big three auto companies and others were screaming, the two governments sat down and said, we had to figure this out. And then over the next several months, at the highest levels of both governments, I mean, John Manley at the time, I think he was the deputy prime minister under Jean Chrétien handling it for the Canadians, Tom Ridge, the Homeland Security advisor at the time handling it for the Americans, you know, they hammered out this elaborate smart borders accord in about three months. So it was it was top of mind priority for both governments. Again, very different uh, from what we've seen uh, under COVID. Why do we think that is? Why was that partnership not leaned on as it has been in the past this time around? Yeah, it's a great question. That I, I don't feel like I have the full answer yet. I think historians are going to be talking about this for a long time. Some of it, I think, was clearly the fact that Donald Trump was president in the United States. And Trump's approach to COVID was so cavalier, so little based in in the science, such as it was at the start of the pandemic, that I think there was this kind of collective horror on the Canadian side. And once the initial agreement was made in March, and it was it was a reasonable precautionary agreement in March 2020. Remember, everybody was locking down. Right? Yeah, we were yeah. all being told to stay at home, so nobody would say, "Oh, that's ridiculous." We just lost Edward. Um, when you take a look at, I mean, sure, at the beginning, and I think a lot of Canadians really felt that the situation that was going on in the United States was uh, out of control. You know, you remember what was going on. It started in Washington State, then it was in New York State, and then um, people were really concerned about what was going on in the States, and I think they were okay with the Canadians keeping the border closed. But now you move into the Biden era, and just this summer when Canada decided to reopen the border 
and the U.S. didn't, I think it was pretty surprising. Okay, I think we've got Edward back. Hi, Edward, we lost you for a second there. Glad you're back. Yeah, hey, sorry about that. No, I was just going to say, you know, in the initial border closure, I think everybody was kind of on board. Yeah. But then the more the U.S. and Canadian approaches to handling COVID diverged, the more conversations about border managers didn't happen, right? The two countries were each going in their own direction, and there just wasn't a whole lot of ground for, for cooperation. But as we move into, you know, Biden's been in power for almost a year now. And, and this summer, I think a lot of people in this country especially were shocked when the Canadians came out and said, OK, we're reopening our border to non-essential travel from Americans. Uh, the expectation was that would be reciprocated. And it wasn't. <laughs> it's taking several months after that. I think that came as a real surprise. And that was Joe Biden. Yeah, it came as a real surprise to me, too. And, and, and the fact that it took so long for any kind of cross-border conversation. I mean, I think a weird thing happened here in the United States, which is which is that tougher responses to COVID came to be associated with the Democratic Party. And the Republicans were seen, I think, rightly in many respects, as, as being irresponsible on the issue. So, I mean, one of the first things Joe Biden did when he became president was reinstate a travel ban on Europe and, and uh, other places that Donald Trump had been prepared to lift. So I think Biden set himself up as a hawk on the border and travel stuff pretty early on. And then the other the other big problem was what to do about Mexico, because the yes. borders, I mean, you know, from the U.S. perspective, the border with Canada, people think about a whole lot of the border with Mexico, people think about and talk about all the time. And and the U.S. closed those two borders simultaneously. And, and, and I think the administration thought, OK, when we move on Canada, we've got to move on Mexico. And for a bunch of reasons having to do with the numbers of people arriving, the southern border. They didn't want to do that. But I, I agree. I, I had really expected that these these things would happen simultaneously, and they didn't. And I think it shocked a lot of Canadians and, and shocked the people on this side of the border watching it closely. So even as we move back to a wide open border, and we are slowly but surely, um, how important it would it be to have, you know, just each administration say, okay, we're going to put together a team that's going to hammer out a, an agreement that works for everybody here and makes sense. I mean, is any of that happening? Because at this point, it still seems like Canada's doing their thing and the U.S. is doing their thing. Yeah, and I wouldn't want to, you know, I wouldn't want to exaggerate this. It's not going to be a wide open border, right? I mean, you know, everybody coming back into Canada still needs a PCR yep. test, which is, you know, means that... And you, you still know, need the, to be vaccinated to get across. Yeah, and you need to be vaccinated, right? Which most Canadians are, and but you know, Americans not at, at such a high at such a high rate. But remember, you know, the lifeblood of that border is the day trips, right? The quick drive over to the United States to do a little shopping and get sure. gas. The you know, quick drive in my neck of the woods up to Vancouver to see a show or whatever. People are not going to do that given the testing requirements. So travel will resume, but nothing like uh, it was uh, before COVID. Um, and your other your other point is is that this is still being done very much in individual yep. ways, right? The U.S. doesn't have a very good system set up yet for proof of vaccine. The Canadians have this ArriveCan app that works pretty well. I think there are going to be different rules for children. Um, you know, if you're, if you're, if you're traveling with, with children under 12 to Canada, there are post-arrival testing requirements. I don't think the U.S. is going to do that. So there's still going to be a lot of discrepancies, and I don't see any serious effort underway to try to iron those out. I hope they, I hope they take that on now, but it isn't there yet. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, maybe we can get back to uh, trans-border cooperation. It seems to make sense. It would make things easier for everybody. But uh, as you say, we're not seeing any indications that's that's being done. We're not seeing it. And the other point I really do need need to stress is that this has been, you know, this has been just so wrenching 
for so many families, right? There are a lot of cross-border relationships, you know, where you've got couples who are split by the border. You've got, you know, kids on one side and a parent yeah. on the other side. Of course, you've got grandparents and extended family. You have people in close relationships who may not be married. I mean, there were all of of, of these these families broken up in different ways by the long border closure. And the governments never gave them any real information. You know, I mean, obviously, the lockdowns domestically separated people, too. But there was always pretty clear communication from the government, right? You know, here's the outbreak. Here's why we're doing the lockdown. You know, as conditions improve, we will ease up. You never saw any of that on the border. Nope. People separated by the border had no idea when things might change, because there was no communication by either of the governments. And so really, you know, really quite disruptive in people's personal lives. Uh, you know, I'm on Twitter with these people all the time, and they're rejoicing today. But but really a lot of devastating stories yeah. about, you know, funerals missed and, you know, not seeing your kids grow up and, and really, really rough stuff. Yeah, it's been it's been a nightmare, and hopefully we're getting towards the end of it. Uh, thanks so much for your time this morning, Edward. Appreciate it. Great to be with you. Sorry for the interruption. Oh, not a problem. Glad it worked out. Uh, Edward Alden, who is a visiting professor of U.S.-Canada Economic Relations at Western Washington University. And yeah, I mean, it kind of, there's a lot of questions around the way this has gone and what's the reasoning behind it. And as he said, it'll be studied, it'll be looked at, and people will try and get to the bottom of why the two countries operated so independently of each other when in similar, you know, kind of similar conditions historically, it's been very cooperative, and they've worked closely hand-in-hand hand to make sure that uh, they were all on the same page. We didn't see that this time. We're still not seeing that. Um, but as we said, still lots of questions about the border reopening, and we will give you the answers as soon as we get them. You know, all in all, we've had a pretty good fall thus far. Um, really no complaints if you think about it, Right. Saw a light dusting of snow in some parts of the province last weekend. Okay, that, that got some people alarmed. Um, but other than that, it's been pretty normal. It's been pretty typical. And I think normal works for most of us. We can deal with that. It's the extremes that set people off. And unfortunately, um, there is some indications that this winter may well be extreme. Extremely cold. <laughs> and we could see more snow than typical in some parts of our country and our province. Um, now, again, this is forecasting the weather. There are signs that we look at that tell us that, but let's get some expert advice on what we're seeing and why we may see, uh, well, a god-awful winter. We're going to chat with uh, David Phillips now, a senior climatologist with Environment Canada. Dave, thanks for joining us. Always fun to chat with you. And you too, Shay. I mean, you're, you're absolutely right. It's been just really a gorgeous fall yeah. across pretty well all of Canada. I mean, when you think about the fact that, um, oh, you've had a touch of snow, I think a measurable amount, 0.2 of a centimeter, where you know you can get buried in September oh, yeah. in snow. And uh, so temperatures in uh, in September were more than a, about almost a degree and a half warmer than normal. They've been that way in, in October, both across the province. So um, I, I think we've at least delayed um, uh, the, the arrival of, uh, of winter, and 
we we know that fall is often the shortest of the seasons. Yeah. But hey, it's it's getting its length right now. And uh, I, I know prairie people always say to me, well, you know, if you could prevent that first heavy snow, you know, make it after Halloween rather than before. Hey, you feel you've won one. That's all we ask. If the kids can go out and do their trick-or-treating, not in the snow and not having to wear the snowmobile suit over their costume, (laughs) we've won. We'll take that. Well, exactly. And Shay, the the other thing that it makes the winter shorter, I mean, if you're really talking about Remembrance Day where winter begins to to bite deep and hard but then comes away and and goes away and you get kind of sort of a late fall fall coming back and then winter, gee, my gosh, you've already used up a couple of months where they could be pretty cruel. So we'll take it. Now, the worry we yep. have here is this yep. report about this. Is it El Nino or La Nina? What are we looking at this winter? Yeah, it's La Nina. La That's Nina. The, uh, the, the girl child, La Nina. It means colder water uh, out in the Pacific, uh, off the, I mean, thousands of kilometers away from Alberta. But it does have an influence. Certainly it has in the past when we've looked at them. And, you know, somebody like myself, I'm into the kind of uh, cl- uh, seasonal forecasting game. I mean, we know how hard it is to forecast the weather tomorrow, particularly in Alberta, let alone a month or three months from now. And um, and so, yes, La Nina kind of improves your batting average. When you get La Nina, El Nino, the El Nino being warm, the La Nina being cold water, it kind of gives you a little bit of a heads up as to the kind of winter that you're going to see. Okay, now the predictions that I'm seeing and I've been mm-hmm. reading uh, aren't good. Uh, we're no. talking about a couple of, re- or maybe even three or four, really, really cold blasts on the prairies and a bunch of snow. Is that what you're seeing? No, I'm not. Um, you know, I mean, yes, I think the, uh, the certain people have got their forecasts out yet. We we hold on to ours to the bitter end, uh, Chase. Not that we're we're, we're scared of it. Mm. It's just that uh, you know we issue the first of December would come out our our winter forecast for December, January, and February. Now we know winter always starts earlier than that and goes later, but that's the core season that we sort of uh, focus on. And so there are some really scary uh, forecasts. Out there, in terms of this is going to be the a winter from hell, the coldest in eight years, and and what have you. And I wouldn't bet the family farmer, the fishing fleet, on it. I may not even bet a, a loony or toony on that. I mean, I I think they're looking at La Nina, La Nina. But but let me give you a little lesson about La Nina. Yeah. You know, as I said, you know, La Ninas were th- this was our, our our bread and butter when we tried to forecast a winter seasons in Canada in the past. But La Nina has changed its stripes. You know, let me give you some examples from, from Calgary and Edmonton in terms of the um, of the frequency of cold and, and snowy winters. Now, back in, say, in the 1950 to 2000, that 50 years, well, you could go, you could just go for it, to go to the bank on it, because uh, typically we had in that period about uh, 14 uh, La Ninas, 12 in Alberta were colder than normal, and two were warmer than normal. So not a, not always a guarantee, but boy, it clearly shows you that the emphasis was on the uh, colder than normal, and also snowier than normal. Great for skiers in yep. the Rockies, but typically a lot more shoveling, plowing, and pushing that you had to do. Now, if you take a look, though, in most recent years, the last Last 30 years since since the year say 1990 to the present, we've had nine La Ninas in that period, Shay. Okay. And in Alberta, we've seen six have been milder than normal, and three have been colder. Hmm. 
about evenly split between snowy and not. So what that's telling you is La Nina has changed its stripes. Now, it's, it, and what it really tells you is that it, La Nina is not the only game in town. Right. It's, uh, you know, you put, your, you put your hat on it and you think, well, that's it, and how it's going to go is so goes the, the winter. Well, that, if it's a strong La Nina, yes, maybe, but I think there's always, nature always has the last uh, laugh at this, and, uh, and so what we are seeing, whether it's climate change or other factors, uh, uh, warmer oceans or less ice, of the north, we're seeing La Nina has just a different behavior. And the other thing, too, last winter was La Nina. That was even a little stronger La Nina. This is two in a row, which is not often happens. And I can remind you of last winter. Don't, don't. I mean, you had, uh, in, in Edmonton was different than Calgary. I mean, you had three quarters of your snowfall in, in Edmonton last year. You had about 20% more in Calgary. So, hey, great for the skiing in the mountains. But my gosh, there was only one cold period, Shay. Yeah, but it was, was really February. cold and it was really long. <laughs> well, it was. It was cold in that February. And, uh, hey, I'm not diminishing those temperatures. You had minus 43.6 yeah. in Edmonton, one of the coldest uh, moments in, in history. But, you know, would you rather have five cold days or five cold months? True, yeah. I mean, I'll take the five days yeah. and just bundle up and stay storm state inside. So my sense is that you can look at La Nina, and it doesn't always give you the, the best clue as to what the, uh, what the winter is going to be. I would suggest that if I was betting on it, it, and it's a little, I wouldn't bet too much money on it, but I would go for last winter because it's very similar in terms of the triggers, the, the forces, but, and it was rather benign, as I say, only two weeks in February where, where you wish you were somewhere else. What about, I mean, this new thing, I imagine it's not new, but it's certainly become something that I'm more aware of, these polar vortexes. How does yep. La Nina work into the whole polar vortex, which is what plunges us into the deep freeze for a good chunk of time? And what's interesting, Shay, about the polar vortex, I mean, it's always there. It's even there in July. But it's just a, a, a cold pole. It spins at the top of the world. I mean, some seasons it's colder than others. But typically what happens is that when it stays up there, that's good news. I mean, let it let the north sure. freeze, but keep keep it away from from us here in the in the southern part in the provinces and so what happens is that a certain time and it usually is triggered by something in the upper atmosphere in the stratosphere and it causes the believe it or not the land the polar vortex to weaken it gets lazy and it begins instead of spinning like a barber's pole or a round circuit like a top it kind of wiggles and wobbles and moves it kind of moves uh, from its uh, hibernation up there in the north down to the south and that's what we saw last February, where that polar vortex moved right down to Saskatoon, southern Alberta, and froze the bejeebies out of people in Texas. So we saw the terrible deaths and and power outages. It was just the whole nation, the whole continent was gripped in this cold uh, polar vortex. But that's when it weakens. Now, we want it to be strong. It'll going to stay up into the north. And so La Nina tends to cause the the polar vortex to kind of weaken and wobble and move a little bit. And that's why there's always a risk of those cold moments that you're going to have in the winter. But sometimes, Shay, those cold moments could go over to Europe. They don't sure. necessarily have to fall over <laughs> this side of the, of the world, you say. So it's a bit of a crap, a crap shoot, you know. You can't 
can't always uh, be sure of what the winter's going to be. We've never canceled winter. I know that's not, this is clearly not going to be the first one we're going to do that. But, um, and, uh, and the other thing, Jay, is just because you had a warm summer and a warm fall doesn't mean nature's going to beat you up or punish you in the wintertime. I mean, we'd love that balance. I'd love to tell you, well, oh, this is going to be a cold winter because we had a hot summer. You'd have this thing all figured out. There'd be no mystery anymore. But, in fact, it doesn't work that way, and so it's a bit of a, of a guessing game. And, unfortunately, nature holds all the trump cards, and we can only try and guess what, uh, what nature is, uh, is doing. And, uh, hey, I mean, the Farmer's Almanac said it was going to be a terrible uh, winter this year, and, and they have seen, I've seen terrible, uh, brutal forecasts coming out of those, that group, uh, when, in fact, it was the warmest winter on record. So, hey, it's, um, it's, it's just it, what it is, what it is, yeah, and, yeah. and we just have to grin and bear it and prepare for it. You know it's going to happen, and, uh, and just hope it's shorter rather than longer. So bottom line, though, all these stories that have been bouncing around for the past couple of days about, oh, no, it's La Nina, and we're going to be hammered by snow, and it's going to be brutally cold on the prairies. Maybe, but maybe not. You can't exactly. bank Exactly. That. See, that's the bottom line. And you, and you, you know, sometimes it's the length of the winter that bothers us most. We're really, hey, we're the second coldest country in the world. We're the snowiest country in the world. We can deal with this sure. as part of our, our DNA. But it is when it goes on longer yes. than, than it really should. Even people who love winter get a little tired of the end when it's just going on for day after day, week after week, and now month after month. So my sense, if we could bottle last year, in spite of those few that cold couple of weeks in Edmonton, I think we take it in a heartbeat. Uh, okay. All right. We'll do our best and we'll survive and we'll get through it like we Good. always do, Dave. You know how it works. <laughs> Appreciate your time. Thank you for joining well, us. Well, and don't come back and blame me for it because I didn't, it didn't cost you anything, <laughs> no, that forecast. You were very non-committal, so we won't <laughs> okay. hold you to anything. <laughs> okay, thanks. Bye, Shay. Talk to you later. Uh, that is David Phillips, a senior climatologist for Environment Canada. And yeah, I mean, I'm sure you've seen the stories. Um, they've been bouncing around as a forecaster has come on and said, oh, it's La Nina, and this is what we expect. Now, if you read the forecast that came out, basically they're talking about below average temperatures right across Alberta, Saskatchewan, and into Manitoba. Pretty normal in through most of BC, not northern BC. Pretty near normal through um, Ontario and actually above normal as you go to eastern Canada. So it's just the prairies that are predicted to get hammered by this below normal temperature. The good news, uh, above average snow in the mountains. So good news for the skiers. But again, right? Who knows? When we talk about weather forecasts and weather, the meteorologists will tell you, when we're talking about today's forecast, we're pretty confident. Tomorrow, yeah, we should have a pretty, pretty good shot at nailing it. And then after that, it, it just goes down and goes down and goes down. And if you're looking at a seven-day forecast, yeah, don't bank on it. Things could change. So when we're talking about forecasting an entire season upcoming up and into the next February and March, we'll just have to wait and see how it goes. Thanks for listening today. To hear any of our other interviews, you can find them wherever you find your favorite podcasts. And if you like what you hear, don't forget to rate and review us.